the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they're easy, but because they are hard. By a Good morning, listeners. Uh, I should qualify that. It's good morning in California time. I'm your host of the Friday Morning Spatial Program, David Livingston, and thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, we're we're going to have a, a really exciting, good discussion today, and uh, I think when you see how we start out in just a minute, uh, you will agree with me. Uh, but first, a couple of very quick announcements. We're on a 90-minute format today. Our toll-free number, uh, which we hope you will use because we are a talk show after all, one 687 7223. Uh, we have um, two attorneys on Sunday uh, for space policy, lunar, and uh, related law, Mark Sundahl, and uh, he wrote a paper and his co-author is with us, T.L. Masson. And then uh, we have a full program next week, except that on Sunday there will be no space show program because uh, they scheduled my second uh, vaccine shot right in the middle of the program and if I want to get it I can't change the time and the date so um, I won't be able to do the show next Sunday but other than that we're space show as normal and we thank all of you listening so um, our website newsletter is published although it will change and be updated this weekend but if you check it out over on the far right of our homepage, you will see um, what we've been doing this week and what's on schedule for Sunday, but you will also see the programs we're scheduling between now and July, and uh, we're rapidly booking up April and May and June, and if you want to recommend a guest to us, please do so, and if you can, include email and why you think that person should be a guest, it'd be greatly appreciated. Remember, all of our programs are archived. You can listen right off of our website or Easily download them. They're small file sizes. And, of course, they're all being set up and being used as podcasts, and you can get them off of your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or need any troubleshooting or help, uh, email me, please, at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. There is a menu in the upper left that tells you how to listen to live programs, website archives, and podcasts. And um, we also have a logo wear store for people who might be interested in space show clothing, space show um, phone holders, uh, dog clothes, baby clothes. I give them as baby gifts all the time. Uh, at least the people thank me for them and say they really like them, so that's my feedback. And uh, to get there, go to any of the pictures of Pepper, the Siberian Husky, listening to the space show, and she will take you to our logo wear store. Uh, also keep in mind the space shows of nonprofit 501c3 with one giant leap foundation. And um, we um, 
if you donate to us and help support us, uh, you do get a tax deduction for um, your gift if you're a federal U.S. taxpayer. The same is true, of course, if you're a California taxpayer. And we are listener-supported, which means people just like you um, listening to this show right now, you, you support us and help us bring great guests uh, like the one I'm going to introduce in just a minute. We also have sponsors, but I'll say more about our sponsors, their banner ads and the sponsor program um, when we break for the second segment of today's program. Uh, so I'm very happy to introduce back to you, he's a former guest, Dr. Clive Neal, and he is a, a professor in the Department of Civil Engineering, Geological Sciences, and Planetary Work at Notre Dame University in Indiana. And he has a, a prolific amount of uh, students, but also papers that he's written. He uh, participates in uh, doing a lot of work with the moon and with the lunar planetary groups. And we're going to talk to him about his work and some of his ideas, a lunar roadmap for development, for example. His bio is up on the website along with his website page, so you can go check out more about him if you want. And But we want to talk to him. And um, Dr. Neal, welcome back to the Space Show. It's been almost 11 years. How are you? Yeah, doesn't time fly. It's great to be back. Thanks for asking me, David. Uh, before the show, as I told you when, when I called you a few minutes ago, I looked up your last appearance, which was July of 2010. Wow. So we did a 90-minute program. And the first mm -hmm. part of the program, we were talking about uh, possibly there being lunar water on the moon. We weren't quite sure of quantities or how it would be used, but that was a really good topic. In the second period of the show, a listener asked you why in the world would we want to go back to the moon anyway, and you were talking about job creation, economics, payback, and then the subject that crossed both segments was if we do go back to the moon not to get bogged down there so that we can't get off the moon and go to Mars or go do anything else in the solar system. So that was almost 11 years ago. Uh, yeah. Have we advanced? Are we still talking about the same items? Do we know a lot more? Have we moved on? Well, I think, uh, I think we've advanced, but I think that the rate of advance has been slower than I would have liked, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We, we know that there's water on the moon, and we have an idea of quantity after the L-Cross results were finally uh, released, and uh, we, we understand, understand you know, L-Cross being the, the impact emission in the Cabeus crater at the South Pole, and then the plume that came up was actually analyzed by a shepherding spacecraft by looking at the interaction with the sun of that material to see there's 5.5% uh, of water. Um, in that uh, in that impact plume, which gives us an idea of, of how much is actually in some of these permanently shadowed craters. The the issue we have though is what I call real ground truth, and uh, this is where NASA now has a viper the, the viper mission, um, and and this is one that has just been pushed back to 2023 because costs uh, have increased, so on and so forth. But this is the first rover to go into a, 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 a to the polar, south polar region of the moon to actually look at the distribution of, uh, of water ice in the in the regolith there to understand if we can actually we can actually get it out and we actually extract it 
how much is there. We know that it's going to be dirty, so we need to really figure out what those contaminants are and are any of those contaminants actually useful to us. So, uh, so this is this is what I say. We're we're advancing, but uh, but after 2010, we went into a period of um, what I call a, almost a black hole in terms of human spaceflight, uh, which was which was you know there was there was no investment in in actually getting humans beyond low Earth orbit, and now we have that and we're back on track. So we we basically lost at least I'd say seven years. Uh, progress. So in the last uh, four years, we've actually made quite a bit of progress. As I say, the Viper mission is a good start, but we still need a, a what I call a prospecting campaign to actually define if, if these resources, these water resources are actually reserves. And that's a bit of geological speak there in terms of uh, your reserves means that we know what's there we know we can extract it, we know how much there is, and we can make a profit out of it. And that's the important thing. It's the economic aspect of that. Um, and how we make a profit out of it is some of the things that where space agencies and governments can come in and start creating markets. But, uh, but we've come a long way, uh, I, I think, since 2010. And... Uh, as I say, I, th- I think we're we're on a track now. The Biden administration is is staying the course as far as I can make out, which is fantastic because we've we've finally got a space program that survived an administration change. <laughs> do do we need to go do this uh, prospecting with with humans on the moon, or can we do it with just um, advanced robotics and maybe AI, or is a combination of both needed? I'd say no. I'd, I'd say this is a, the, the prospecting is robotic. Okay. Um, down here, down here, humans humans would do it, but but uh, but it's it's what I call mundane. If you've you've got humans off planet, um, you're doing the same thing in a grid pattern over and over again. This is something for robotics to do, um, and this is this is something that uh, you know if, even if if we have a um, uh, Artemis base camp, for example, at the South Pole, and there's a, an unpressurized rover. This is something that that rover, which is good for transporting humans around when, when humans are there, but when they're not there, it could go off and do some prospecting. Uh, this is something that uh, we can, because it's not just one location. We need to look at, at the locations we know contain water ice to understand which are the best ones. What is the role of um, getting humans back on the moon then with Artemis or maybe a private sector direct to the moon approach? Again, it's it's um, the the goal as I see it is is to uh, is to set a foothold to show off world capability. Number one, uh, we we need to start thinking about this, and the reason I say that is because the technologies that that are desperately needed to support human life. Um, off planet, have a, have a lot of those have have great potential back on this planet to improve society um, and also improve our environment. So this is this is what we call the the payback, if you like, or the return on investment. Um, the, the goal of humans out there is to explore. Um, it's to it's to then have humans out there. It will in, in actually encourage economic growth. Um, if you just do everything robotically, the economic growth is going to be minuscule, and we're not, we, we miss an opportunity for 
for growing a sector of a, a new sector of our economy. So uh, having, having to support humans off planet is is something that I think is enabling um, both uh, both for future exploration, i.e., going on to Mars and beyond, but also in terms of uh, payback to this planet. So um, your first email question has come in from Shelley in Denver. And she mm-hmm. says, why do we have to go to the moon or space to create, develop, or innovate these technologies that you're saying will improve matters here on Earth? Why can't we just make these technologies here on Earth and use them here without the cost of going to space? Political will, number one. Um, political will is a, is, a, is a big issue. Um, there are a lot of governments that don't. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's let's talk about uh, uh, recycling. Uh, there's you know, some people don't think there's a need to do that. All right, there is a there is definitely a need to do that if you're off planet, and it brings those technologies to the front in a way that is going to going to uh, actually sustain human life off planet. So I've heard this before that uh, oh, why, why are we spending all this money to go to space? Um, because we've got all this trouble down here. Why are we spending all this money on, on NASA? Uh, NASA in 2019 got, I think, $22, $23 billion. And in the study they did, they looked at the economic impact of that. And uh, the economic impact was over $64 billion into the economy of the United States. So there is, there is a payback already in terms of um, what this planet gets out of our investment in space. So um, I, I don't buy the argument of why you know, we, we need to spend that money down here. We are spending that money down here, and we are investing down here already by going to space. Um, by not doing that, we basically remove that, that, uh, that investment in our society. Um, are you um, pleased with the Artemis approach of getting us back to the moon and with people in the, in the timeline for doing that? Uh, I know others would like to go direct like we did with Apollo and not have a gateway. What, what's your thought of the lunar roadmap that we have in place right now? It's a good start is the way I would describe it. Um, I think it's a good start, but, but again, why we have a gateway is, is basically – um, a hangover from the poor choices that were made in previous administrations. Um, we, we have a, an Orion spacecraft that has been developed to go to an asteroid, so it doesn't have the guts to actually get into a gravity well. So it can only dock with a gateway. Um, so what we're doing is we're now shoehorning in technology that was developed for a different, different destination. And this is this is one of the one of the big issues that it, it suddenly dawned on me. Why why does NASA and other space agencies keep developing developing destination specific technology? Why don't they develop destination agnostic technologies? Then because if we do get an administration, well, when we get an administration strange, and if they do change the destination, we don't throw that all away. We don't then have to spend more money to shoehorn in technologies that were not developed for that destination uh, in order to make them work. Um, so, so this is, well, one would say maybe this is poor planning uh, that, that went on, but, uh, but when you're given a, a, a directive, you follow that directive. But, uh, but this is something that I think that uh, all space agencies need to look at in terms of 
looking what the current mandate is and how they can then develop destination agnostic technologies, architectures, so that we can go anywhere. Why, why do we limit ourselves? And, and unfortunately, the gateway is now a requirement because Orion can't get to low, low lunar orbit like, uh, like, like the Apollo missions did. It's not designed to do that. Um, unfortunate, <clears throat> but, uh, but, uh, but I think, I think we need to, I think there will be a development of technologies to go direct. Um, the other thing that Gateway does do is that this will probably be the way that we're going to get humans on the surface of Mars. There will need to be an orbital, um, um, halfway house, if you like, or way stations where, where you go out to Mars with humans, and then you can uh, dock the spacecraft and then descend from that orbiting facility. So in, in looking at the, as if the, the cup is half full, maybe then we're, we're saying, okay, we can use the moon then to learn how to, how to go to Mars. Um, but, uh, but again, the gateway is there because, because of poor planning leading up to, leading up to this. Politicians and, and NASA had the, the guts to do it. Would scrapping the gateway and these plans for a better approach and a more direct approach be cost effective, or is it too late now? Well, again, it's it's fact, never too late. It's, um, but I, I think I think a study needs to be done, an independent study needs to be done, as to what is the most cost effective way to enable uh, humans uh, to. Uh, be or to to have um, human presence uh, on the uh, on the lunar surface be sustainable, and and these are some of the things I think are are the uh, immediate um, studies that need to be done in order to ensure that we invest the taxpayer money correctly, and in order that we then look at the return on investment from that investment in in a, in a real really positive light. I mean, the goal here is, is the moon becomes our enabling asset. Um, it, we, we, it's, it's close, certainly compared to Mars. So uh, looking, looking at the moon uh, to understand the moon for itself and how the moon through its resources can enable economic uh, expansion uh, to make humans on the moon sustainable um, is a blueprint of the way we should do things at Mars. Now, this is way out in the future, in my opinion. I, I won't see this, but, but this is the generation that can lay the foundation for this. This is the generation that, uh, that can, can actually make human spaceflight sustainable. Um, and and, I, and, and I, I define sustainable as a real and tangible return on investment. Um. You have a, another uh, question. Um, Bob is in Houston, and he says there is a very proactive advocacy movement for space settlement, plus obviously people in the space industry are strong believers in it. Can space settlement for the moon go on at the same time some of this prospecting and early analysis goes on? Or in order to have a settlement on the moon, whatever that may look like, do we first need to have some of this engineering and scientifically scientific work completed? That's a, that's a good point, Bob. Um, the the way I look at this, and this is coming back to NASA's current documents for the uh, Artemis rollout, the Artemis base camp is something that can be set up now. 
the issue of human permanence on the moon is going to be dictated by whether or not we can live off the land there. So setting up the Artemis base camp is something I think is essential to do now, um, that we can have um, uh, long-term but not permanent human presence. Uh, but we can have prospecting going on in that area to understand the things that I talked about earlier about all right, what, what is, the, what is the, uh, uh, the abundance of water, how accessible is it, can we extract it, what are the impurities, is it economic, are there reserves there? Uh, because that then becomes enabling. If we show that there is, there is abun- abundant quantities of water that is harvestable and usable for, for supporting uh, hum- human life, then human permanence becomes, um, becomes real. And to enhance the economic impact, it would be good if, 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 uh, if this nation would, would actually make that the goal. We need human permanence on the moon because that requires a long-term commitment and that would then inspire uh, the private sector to get involved because of that long-term commitment. Um. To do that, I guess they'd have to incorporate that in the National Space Plan or the National Space mm-hmm. Policy thing. And do you see any signs of that happening? I do not. I do not have a, a very, very good crystal ball these days, given what's happened in 2020. <laughs> so um, I, I do not. But um, but I, I will say this: that that in this uh, in 2020 was it was a was was epic in terms of job contraction. But I did some analysis of, uh, um, of space companies, and space companies had anywhere between 50 to over 100 percent increase in uh, in jobs uh, in their organisations. Uh, this is something that uh, that I that I've asked the, the league. The, well, let me let me just back up a little bit. When when I was in my second term as league chair, 2015-2018, um, I set up. The, uh, the, the League Commercial Advisory Board. We now have over 40 um, companies as part of that Commercial Advisory Board. And in looking at, uh, I asked them to tell me about their um, their job growth uh, since uh, since 2017. And throughout 2020, a lot of these were still growing, even when everybody else was contracting. So this is again, this this growth comes from the the space policy we currently have, we go into the moon and Mars, um, and the, uh, the the fact that we now have commercial involved in getting payloads to uh, the lunar surface as well as the human landers. Um, this is this is a a paradigm shift in the in the way of thinking, uh, and it's, it's it causes job growth growth even during. Um, a pandemic and a, and a massive contraction. So, so this is this to me is is something to continue investing in. It is something that is that is uh, an area that we need to exploit. Uh, we keep we keep graduating a lot of students from universities, mine included. And I really think we're we're getting to the point where uh, the space sector and having having. Uh, Students, when they graduate working off planet, not that far away anymore, um, and I'm and I'm hoping that I'll be alive to see that. So I, I think that this is this is an opportunity we have. We're seeing that return on investment now, and we need to keep it growing. 
Um, <clears throat> you we've mostly been talking about the moon, but you have talked about going forward and, and going on to Mars. Um, does um, Musk and, and SpaceX and the private company, kind of independent of everything else, timeline for going to Mars? How does that enter in? Because it's pretty different than what the what the government and what policy is like, and and if we really need to be to learn how to do things by going to the moon first, Musk isn't waiting for that. At least he doesn't talk like he's waiting for that. So how do, how does the private sector plans to get to Mars pretty quickly, assuming you know his rockets and stuff take check out? How does that enter into the picture? Uh, right now, um, I think that that having having a good offense is the best kind of defense. So yeah, they're talking a good line. They want to go then, and it's great because it pushes people to innovate. But there there are some serious issues. It's not just rockets that need to be um, need to be innovated, but there are serious issues in terms of protecting humans in a tin can, the six to eight months to go to Mars um, in order to keep them alive or, uh, or viable, if you like, uh, when the, at the time they actually get there. So those, some of the, those are some of the things that haven't been talked about. And uh, I, think that, uh, I, I think that they need to be looked at in a lot more detail. And there are ways that the, the moon can become enabling for that. Um, you talk to SpaceX, they want to bypass the moon, go straight to Mars. And I would say, well, go ahead, but uh, you're probably going to be in the business of killing people if you do that. Um, and and the people will argue with me, and I'm, I'm I'm being deliberately provocative. I'm looking forward to the questions. Um, but uh, but there's there's a there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And as as they're finding out, that this is this is a difficult thing to do. Um. So. Uh... Listeners, if you want to argue with our guest, the toll-free number is somebody does want to argue with you. Hang on. Uh, good morning, caller. Welcome to the Space Show. Who are you and where are you, please? This is Dallas Beanhoff. Dave, how are you? Pretty I'm good. Are you going to argue with Clive? I am. <laughs> hello, hello, Dallas. Hi, Clive. How are you? Oh, peachy. Yeah. You know, if... if um, if people are going to Mars one way, they're going to die one way or the other there. Mm-hmm. If they stay here, they're going to die one way or the other. Yep. If if we want to go, if if we if I want to go to Mars and and live out the rest of my days there, that's great. Um, and, and I should be able to do that. <clears throat> and I think that's, I mean, that's mostly the the first step in, in Elon's plan. It's not necessarily to, to come back because he needs refueling capability right. to do that. So um, I, I'm all for whoever gets there, however they get there, and, and whoever wants to go. Um, you know, NASA has a lot of, of restrictions on, on uh, increased incidence of cancer probability that, that may be too low and, and may be being relaxed. I think, I think I read something about that recently. But, um, but I think... I think uh, I think we're going to see it faster than you're expecting. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I really do, um, because yeah. that, that, again, is going to innovate things. Right, right. Uh, so, so, yeah, I agree. If people want to go, my, my concern is that they, they're probably not going to be viable by the time they get there. 
Well, then that would be true of of, of uh, small number NASA missions too. Right. I agree. What would and you do? Things. What would you do to make them viable or to ensure oh, their okay. viability? Again, I think I think we need to look at what is needed to protect the humans, um, and then that is radiation shielding becomes number one, and that's right. Right. It's quite it's quite uh, it's quite heavy. It's it's mass intensive. So with the you know I've heard that they you know put a meter thick sheet of water around the the capsule to to offer protection from ionizing radiation. Right. You can also get that by packing your cargo on the exterior walls and, and reducing yep. the number of people one sends in, in the starship if that's the way we're going. Yep. That could be it could be another way to do it. But uh, but again, then you get a solar flare on your way out to uh, out to out to Mars. Always a possibility. How much how much Always, protection yeah. are you going to have from that? Right. So, yeah. So there, there's there's some non-trivial things that need to be looked at. Because, oh yeah, uh, and I would have zero at microgra or artificial gravity as well. Right, right, and that's where the moon can come in to help again right. because we know what the body does at one gra one g, and we know what it does at microgravity. Right now, is one one six g enough to to reduce or stop the the effects of uh, microgravity on the on human physiology? Who knows? Who we don't knows? Have, we don't have any long term yeah. studies of that. Exactly. So that's just again why the moon becomes an enabling asset to answer some of those questions. And the or, sooner we or the that, orbital or, or the orbital assembly corporations um, rotating hotel that and, and you send up a hundred people for a year at a time there. Yeah, there there are ways to do this. Um, so right. again, this is this is something that needs to be looked at. There is a there is a logical way to do it because we don't need a failure. Um, uh, in, in either going to the moon or because we saw what happened with Apollo 13. Right. Um, right. And that was the end of the program, pretty much. Well, Clive, um, how do we know Musk and SpaceX aren't doing this? Maybe they're doing this and looking at this independent of, of NASA and, and bringing independent eyes and, and creative ingenuity to these problems. He doesn't talk about it very much, but how do we know this is not going to be in place when he's ready to go to Mars. Again, I, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, as I say, I, I don't know. I don't know what SpaceX is doing. It would be good to, good to find out. Maybe, maybe you need to have 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 one of those folks on your on your show. They don't talk about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, going back to your Artemis camp comment, um, I just read this morning that Blue Origin, I, yeah, Brent Sherwood, uh, said that they're. Their first lander, their demonstration lander, is going to be the start of the Artemis Space Camp with communications, Wi-Fi, um, power, and a couple of other things that are needed for the next step. So fantastic! Yep, that's that's this is this is what we need. Yeah, this is this is why this is why Artemis is is so much uh, more. I'm, I'm much more hopeful about Artemis than I was with Constellation. Well, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't raise your hopes too much based on the cost <laughs> report that just came out. Well, that's uh, it's, again, this is this is something that uh, we heard for Constellation, but uh, yeah, uh, maybe maybe a revision of SLS. I don't know. 
Right. But uh, but there are other players in the game, and, and, yes, and they're coming all the time. So um, keep your hopes up, and, and let's just figure out what we, what we enable to be done there by whomever right. wants to do it. Dallas, exactly. Dallas, what was the report you mentioned? Your phone cut out just as you mentioned that report. Oh, on, on, on the cost? Yeah, on, on the, the Artemis, uh-huh. I, I read it in, in uh, an email or or um, um, one of the online places that I read every day. Okay. Whether it was NASA Watch or uh, Space.com or or um, uh, University uh, Today, Univers today? But uh-huh. it said two two billion or four billion a mission. For an Artemis mission, that's using SLS, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. There you go. It's the that's the again throwaway technology. Yeah. It 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 was really I think it was really an anti SLS article, but I think that's what you're looking at there. And you know, again, uh, you, given given it's the unfortunate thing that the, the launch companies have moved on, um, yeah. but that uh, Boeing and NASA haven't. But even even what we're doing at CSDC, um, you know, it, it's it, it's a, a billion dollars to to put people on the moon mm-hmm. it, it, with lo, with the low propellant prices or or Earth to orbit prices offered by Falcons and uh, Vulcans and New Glens. Mm-hmm. It just takes that much propellant. <clears throat> yeah, we need uh, maybe we need a different source of propellant. Well, that would be, that would be good, but but it has to be cheaper than getting it there from Earth. Well, we need to know, and we need to come back to the initial thing about prospecting and figuring out the economic viability of, of uh, lunar water. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. So I'll let you, we're in bonded I'll let you agreement, go. Dallas. Again, yep. <laughs> I know, I know. I just like to talk to you and hear what you have to say. It's been a while since I've seen you. Yes, it has. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll come through the phone and, and let other people call in and harass you. Thank you very All much, right. Dallas. Good to hear from you again. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, Dallas. Uh, listeners, you can call in and argue or, or add to or discuss. one 687 7223 Email remains drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Clive, are we, are we getting... Competition? Are we getting goosed, sort of? Maybe that's not a good word to use on the air, but to, to get our <laughs> our ducks in order here and 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 pick it up and and pick up the tempo. I mean, it, it would competition help if it if there was competition? Well, let's learn from history. Competition is not sustainable. Okay. Uh, Apollo Apollo showed that. We landed Apollo eleven and we won. Competition was over. Now what are we going to do? Well, then it became a way to try and find a, find ways to cancel the program. Um, Apollo 13 started that off, and then we had Vietnam War and so on and so forth. So a wholly government-funded um, enterprise uh, was, was cancelled. Just think if we'd have kept going with Apollo, where we'd be now. Um, this is This is something that, you know, I've had plenty of time to sit in my chair and muse a little bit over the last year. So, uh, so sometimes I, I wistfully think about well, what would Apollo 31 look like. So, uh, um, but uh, but anyway, 
we can't we can't live in 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 in, in dreamlands all the time. But but we um, have a, but we have a private sector now, and, and private sectors seem to thrive on competition. So would competitions beef up the the private sector so it could do even a lot more than it's doing today? Again, this is this is carefully carefully managed private sector because if you look at Apollo. There was a lot of private companies involved in that, but it was 100% government contract. Right. Then you get fat and happy, and so so that that requires a different approach. And this is where the commercial lunar payload services program that NASA is is has started under Jim Bridenstine uh, becomes uh, innovative, fixed price contract, um, accepting more risk. But, but a fixed price contract, and it then opens up the sort of a, a limited competition between commercial lunar payload service providers. So, so this is this is a different way to do it, and, and building on those public-private partnerships, can we do a similar sort of thing with a prospecting campaign? Um, if the government is willing to say we're willing to buy this much water for, for life support and rocket fuel from you um, at this this price. Um, is that is that enough to incentivize the, uh, the the private sector to go out to uh, to the moon and, and do the prospecting to figure it out? There are, there are ways to do this now that, that we've, we've never had before, and and it becomes it it, it requires a a different uh, mode of thinking from the government sector. Because we're stuck with Apollo, because that's how we do human spaceflight beyond low Earth orbit. Well, we need to change that. Apollo was good, and it was a good start, but Apollo was not sustainable. It got cancelled. You look at uh, International Space Station, which is cooperative, 20 years of human occupation. So let's learn from history and not repeat it. And, And I really think we need to look at cooperative aspects uh, between governments, but also there, there needs to be a, a uh, in, in terms of the public-private partnerships, uh, I wouldn't call it competition, but I think incentives uh, are, are the way I would uh, describe that. And, and this is a very different way of thinking. It's new. And so, all right, well, how, how are we, how, how we going to do this? But isn't that an exciting time to be in? This is something new that we can innovate and we can evolve. And if we don't evolve the CLIPS program, the, the commercial lunar payload services, it then becomes some, a target to cut. So it has to be shown that it is returning on that investment. But we need to look, okay, what's the next step? What's the next step in, the, in, in, in CLIPS? What's, what is, it, is it the prospecting campaign? And I don't know if anybody's looking at that. Um, I, I assume not because I've not heard anything. But we need to evolve that now because if, if you don't have a growing program, you have a dying program. You have another email. Um, Alex is in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and he says, um, I, th- I think a dose of reality is needed here because if we look around what's going on in the country today and what has been going along in recent years, does anyone really think that we have a government capable of changing the mode and the way it operates and thinks like you're suggesting we need? We seem to be getting worse and going down the tubes faster and faster every day. How in the hell are you going to accomplish what you want to accomplish when, in fact, 
the government itself is part of the problem, as myself and probably millions of other Americans see. Yes, uh, thanks, Alex. You, 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 it's a it's a reality check. Yeah, that's for un- sure. Unfortunately, but, but, yeah. but again, but again, let's let's not let's not get disheartened. Right? <laughs> new ideas, new ideas need to be socialized, and they need to be tested. So it's up to us to put those new ideas out there and be vocal about them, and and, and almost require. Uh, policymakers to, to, to prove us wrong, um, and it's it's not a not a uh, combative uh, issue. It's it's more along the lines that listen to us. You are a government of the people and by the people. We are the people. You can tell from my northern Indiana accent. <laughs> so 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 again, you you, you, you I'm 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 emboldened. Uh, by the fact that I am an American citizen, and I am emboldened by the fact that that there are policymakers that do listen to new ideas, um, and and I think that that um, you know, given what has happened in the last I don't know decade or so, um, I think I think we now need to be even more vocal as private citizens about new ideas and and new ways of doing things. Um, and those that are good are going to grow, and I, and I, I really do believe that. Um, but we need to we need to sort of make sure that that we communicate effectively with our elected officials. Easier said than done. You, you have another. Well, is it? Is it? <laughs> is it? I, I I I again. I think that communicating effectively doesn't mean to say that look, I'm right and you're wrong. It's, look, I have an idea. What do you think? And I can say, well, it's wrong because of this, that, and t'other. Let's start a dialogue. And, and, and part of, part of uh, developing a new idea is, is compromise and listening and, and being um, ob- uh, objective in our thinking rather than subjective. You have a caller on hold, Clive. Let's uh, switch to the caller. Okay. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to our program today. Who are you and where are you? And we appreciate your call. Hi, this is Kim in Mexico. Hi, Kim. Good to hear from you again. Hello, Kim. Hey, Clive. Um, what you're saying makes uh, a lot of things cross my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. There have been more efforts recently uh, to have an international dialogue on uh, frameworks for how the moon should be explored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some things have been raised that um, I, I'd like to know your opinion on this, on, on how soon this might become a real issue, um, and uh, for one thing, I'm wondering what League's role is in that, <laughs> and uh, for another, um, how soon do you think um, these things become uh, a practical reality of, of thinking about um, the effect of, of dust raised on one landing site uh, affecting somebody else's work, uh, mm-hmm. or possibly even... Um, Space debris in lunar orbit. Uh, there we go. What is yeah. yeah. I think I think this is something. Again, we can learn. We can learn from history because we look at look at the debris around the Earth. Um, we, we don't want the moon to get that way. Uh, so how are we going to deal with that? So I I would say that the Artemis Accords uh, that the the National Space Council developed, uh, Scott Pace, and 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 I I really really like them. 
because they represent a focus to start a discussion. Um, and, and this is something that, that I think is needed now. And we need to start that discussion and we need, and it needs to be again an objective discussion rather than pushing agendas. So again, we need to learn to live off the land if we're going to go to the moon. But how can we do that, you know, um, effectively and safely? So there, you, you raised a, a number of specific things that are, that are what I call, um, immediate first things to be done. Uh, and that's okay. We, we're going to we're going to go back to the same place at the South Pole. How are we going to prevent sandblasting the assets we've prepositioned <laughs> when, we, when we land there? Um, we, we see the sandblast in effect, and Apollo 12 landed near Surveyor 3. So, so we know we know that it happens, and, and, and Phil Metzger has done a lot of work on on uh, on the effect of plumes. Uh, and, and uh, dust plumes and, and exhaust and how exhaust is going to impact the surface. So we, we, we know what's going to happen when we, we put another lander down next to one that's already there. So what is the initial engineering that needs to be done in order to create a, a, a safe landing site? It becomes very important for that. Um, that then feeds into, is, well, okay, how are we going, if we're going to go out and do all this prospecting, how, how can we then make that? Can companies make a profit off the, off the material that we uh, we actually we find there, and we actually refine into products that are that are sellable? So the Artemis Accords represents then a focus. There's also a, a Hague International Group that has that has worked on this as well. But bringing bringing these entities rather than rather than doing it sort of well, I'll do this and you do that. Why don't we bring everybody together and talk about it? Let's create a framework for it. And this is what I think the Artemis Accords can do. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm very optimistic uh, that, uh, that we'll be able to get a dialogue going. Um, we can do that through the, um, um, uh, the global, uh, what is it, the ISEG-G, international, forgotten what the acronym is now. I know the acronym is what it means. But it's the uh, International Space Agency's the International Space Coordination Exploration Coordination Group. That's the one um, where there's 14 or so space agencies in a dialogue about this. This is something that I think G could could take on, and uh, there, there's there's a great basis there to start a discussion. Uh, I've looked a little recently at uh, the Open Lunar Foundation, which is uh, mm-hmm. not associated with any government. Um, how, how do they fit into something like this? Um, this is this is something where you have people, educated people, having good ideas, and and this is something that uh, that that needs to be brought into the conversation as well. Um, I, they they have ideas of how to do things on the moon. Governments have ideas to do things on the moon, and there's a lot of synergy between what they do. There's differences in how they do it. But this is where the dialogue is needed. This is where discussion is needed um, so that, so that uh, we, we move forward together. And this is where I come back to my cooperation is more long-term than, than competition. It's more sustainable. And, and I, I come back to starting that conversation now uh, between different entities 
and feel they have a have a stake in this this whole endeavor uh, it becomes very important to be to be part of that conversation um, but but have a platform where it's safe to have that conversation so so I, I think that, that that NASA can take the lead in this the United States has already done that through through the Artemis Accords um, and it, and it's a, I, I find it exciting that uh, that we have something like this upon which to build. You know, uh, it's interesting to me um, uh, because uh, league is something that uh, I, I used to follow. Um, mm-hmm. I went to one of your meetings once, and um, I had always thought of it as essentially being part of NASA. <laughs> but I'm surprised at how candid you are about a lot of very political matters and uh, so it wonders, I'm wondering about the independence of the League or, or how that structure is working within NASA. Okay, well, no, num- number one, I'm no longer part of the League leadership. Oh, okay. I, 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 was, I was League Chair from 2006 to 2010 and again from 2015 to 2018. Okay. So I, I've done my time. We developed the Lunar Exploration Roadmap. We established the, uh, the League Commercial Advisory Board and now people, younger people... <laughs> with, with, with better ideas than me are, are, are taking on that mantle. Um, I, I've always been candid, and, uh, and and to my detriment, I have to admit. But uh, but I think it's important to be candid and, and open uh, because then misunderstandings get aired out and dealt with. And and I think that's that's the important thing here. Is that uh, you know, I can be under, I, I can be candid now because yes, I, I, I have a love of league. I've I invested a fair, fair amount of time into league, um, and I want it to succeed. But it's time for me to move on um, mm. and let the young folks with new ideas, more energy <laughs> um, to, uh, to 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 lead that. But but it, but again. League has produced a lot of studies and a lot of uh, reports and, and, and the roadmap, um, which, which has been used by the National Space Council um, to help develop the Artemis program. So, so this, is, this is something where we've been, um, uh, we've been helpful. Uh, we've done the analyses. Uh, so, so this is, this is uh, now I'm talking to you as a, as a private citizen. This is these are, these are my my thoughts um, of where I see we can we can move things forward um, together. Cool. Okay. Thank you for your answers. Kim. Oh, no worries. Thanks for your questions. Kim, thank you for your call. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, listeners, your turn is now uh, up for you to call, and our phone number is available for you: one eight six 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 eight seven. Seven two two three, and um, I'm, I'm going to skip the uh, the break if that's okay with you to, to keep talking. And uh, I'll mention our, I'll yep. mention our sponsors at the end of the program. Uh, but uh, Randy's in Tucson, and Randy says I'm not sure this is a, an issue for lunar settlement or getting a base camp going or something with people on the moon. But we hear more and more about planetary protection, and we hear more and more from the Mars people that this could absolutely ruin the Mars human program. 
Can you comment on planetary protection, Mars, humans to Mars, and if it has an impact on the moon as well? It does have an impact on the moon because of the the, um, uh, the polar ice deposits. Uh, the, the deposits in the permanent shadow craters at the poles, uh, there's a... There's, there's thoughts that these could be very old and they could contain prebiotic signatures um, of the such that seeded the earth from which life evolved. So we don't want to contaminate them. So uh, for Mars, the fact that it had an environment that was hospitable to life at some point or may, may still do in the subsurface, um, planet protection is more of an issue than for the moon. But the, the issue of planetary protection has been raised at the National Academies level for the moon in terms of, well, what happens if we keep going back to, to the polar regions? Uh, that, that rocket exhaust is going to get coal trapped in these permanent shadow craters and then contaminate the, um, uh, the, the ice that's, that's there. Uh, so it, it is an issue. And, and those regions of the moon have gone to um, Category 2, which means basically that every spacecraft that goes there has to have an inventory of all or organic uh, or, or inorganic propellants that, uh, that it carries. So we know what's being put into the environment there. Um, for Mars, it's, it's a little bit more complicated, and I'm, I'm, I'm not up to the – I don't have the understanding of what the different planet protection levels for Mars uh, are. But, uh, but, but again, we've got a lot of unknowns in terms of these, in terms of these permanently shadowed craters at the, at the moon. We need to understand um, what, what, what the surfaces are actually like. Are there, there's, there's hypotheses out there that suggest that it's uh, desiccated at the top and, and quite granular, and uh, it would then allow volatiles to be cold-tracked down into, uh, into the regular. Um, but we know from uh, the LRO mission that uh, there's surface water deposits in, in many of these permanently shadowed craters. So a desiccated idea is, is, uh, is, is not holding up in, in, in those instances. Um, and if it is at the surface, then we would then contaminate just the surface uh, with, these, uh, with these rocket exhausts. So... so if there are areas that are screaming out to be investigated with ground truth. <laughs> so, so we, but, but in doing so, will we contaminate them? And so it, it's, it's a, uh, um, but, but, but again, um, the, we, the moon has two poles. There's water ice at the North Pole and there's uh, water ice at the South Pole. Artemis is going to the South Pole. Um, and uh, but that leaves another pole for for future exploration anyway. So so I think there needs to be a, a, a discussion about this. The the, the planet's protection. Um, you know, humans have already visited the moon, so if that's the case, then it's contaminated, just not at the poles. Um, and uh, but but Mars, we have to have to be a lot more careful about this, and that's. Um, uh, you know, there, there are specific zones that have already been identified that, that shouldn't be for human landing, um, as far as I understand. But again, I'm, I'm not an expert on that for the, for the Mars situation. So, so it could constrain where, say, Musk might want to go with, with humans or where um, 
a, a lunar settlement with a private sector might want to be established on the moon, planetary protection could thwart that and, say, relocate, correct? Well, in terms of the moon, as long as you've given an inventory of what you're taking there and what you're going to be spraying over the moon as you come into land and uh, what you're going to use after that, um, that's, that, that's, that's all you need to do right now. Okay. Um, but Mars is, is probably a little more complicated than that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's more of an issue. What about bringing soil samples from Mars back to Earth? Your, your thoughts on that? Well, again, if they're surface samples, then we should bring them back. Um, there's, uh, uh, that we know that the, the surface of Mars is, is pretty in, inhospitable. And, uh, so, I don't see any 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 issue with that, but you then get into a probability game. What is the probability of that of of, of that containing uh, extant life? And uh, that may that may then dictate how you handle that sample. Can you bring it back to Earth because you may contaminate Earth? Um, and you know that 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 is something. I hope that we can get past that and get. The, Samples that were taken in situ from Mars brought back. Um, we do have samples from Mars on this planet in terms of meteorites, so Martian material has been coming to Earth for, for many years, um, and uh, so far, so good. Uh, you have another caller wanting to give you a call, wanting to talk to you. Okay. Excuse me. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to our program today. Who are you and where are you, please? Hi, David. This is John of Fremont, California. Hi, John. Welcome to the Hello, show. Hello, John. Hi, Clive. Um, really interesting topic. Um, I, uh, I, I was unaware that um, planetary protection was concerned about um, the, uh, the moon, and so um, this is news to me. So uh, it sounds like it would not be an issue to um, go and prospect and eventually um, – uh, mine uh, lunar ice for uh, propellants and such. Right, right, right. Right now, that's it's 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 not an issue. All it is is inventorying what you're going to be taking with you. So we can then interpret. We can we can we can extract or understand any contamination that that may may affect these volatiles. Um, obviously, if you're landing, we're using LOX hydrogen. You're just pumping water into into a cold trap, and that right. then becomes a renewable resource. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but, yeah. but some of the other nasties they've used for for, for, for propellants, um, you know, those those need to be looked at and understood. Okay, um, and as far as long term settlement goes, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's. There's a camp of people that believe that, uh, well, I mean, we don't know how uh, humans are going to um, uh, respond to lower gravity, especially when we're, you know, talking about reproduction. And mm -hmm. um, and so um, uh, I, I think, you know, um, it, it might make sense for free space settlements to generate artificial gravity long-term for 
faith-based settlement, and um, you know that's that's a long ways off because of um, the engineering challenges of such large settlements. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I don't know if I'm generating a question here, but I wanted to see where you fell in in the um, debate on that. Well, again, I, I, as I said earlier, you, you've, we know what the body does in one g. We know what it does in microgravity. Uh, is one six g enough? To stop the the, uh, the the bad things that happen to the body at microgravity, we don't know. We don't have a a, uh, a long term issue. Um, if you go to the moon, you have a, a constant one six g that you don't have to engineer, and then you also have material that you can use to protect yourself against solar flares and other radi- radiation that that's going to come in. If you do it in free space, you then got to engineer all those protections, which is going to make things a lot more expensive. So um, you can use the local materials there. There's, there's talk of lava tubes in, uh, and, and using inflatables in lava tubes on the moon to, to afford uh, protection from the diurnal temperature swing from night and day, the radiation and uh, micro me- macro meteoroid bombardment. Um, is, is to use, use the, what we're now, we, now we know, well, we've known them since Apollo, these lava tubes exist, but we know that there's a lot more of them than we first thought. So, so there's, there's um, again, the moon is the enabling asset. To understand that becomes important. You know, and and in in the in the uh, lead lunar exploration roadmap, we spent uh, quite a bit of time looking at how we could use the moon to understand um, how how the body reacts, um, and that was that was done in a way to sort of use the moon to feed forward to Mars. If we go to Mars, do we only need to generate one six G in order to help the humans remain viable uh, on the trip out there? Yeah, well, th- so I'm, I'm less concerned about, um, you know, um, the viability of humans going out there and, and radiation protection. I think all those things are engineering challenges, life support yep. and such. But yep. um, reproduction in lower gravity is um, a, I, the biggest question I have. And I guess we just have to go there and do the studies on uh, mammals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously we can't do it on humans, but um, we need to, to understand how lower gravity affects uh, reproduction. And um, that's, that's the big question for space settlement in my mind long term. Mm-hmm. Again, again once, once you have a base camp that is evolving, uh, these sorts of studies can be done. Um, we, we didn't include that type of study in the, in the uh, lunar exploration roadmap, but, but similar, similar things in terms of physiology was included there. It was, it was not completely comprehensive, but it was quite comprehensive in terms of what you can do once you have established a base camp. Yeah, so um, one more question, and I'll clear the line. Mm-hmm. Um, you said earlier that... Um, you know, it, it, if we could live off the land, there, there's a big question of if we can use, um, you know, um, uh, in-situ resource utilization. Um, is, is there a big question on that? I mean, from the prospecting that we've done with, with uh, um, uh, remote sensing at this point, um, we know water's there, and there's there's tons of people, George Sowers and um, you know Joel Serrell uh, at uh, mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, various companies and, and um, others uh, are, are doing the engineering to um, to get the water out. And so, um, is there any doubt that we'll be able to do that? I mean, it's 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 a straight straightforward engineering solution. To, to okay, my mind. again, again, we we don't know the form that the water is in. We don't know um, if it's intergranular, whether it's a layer, whether it's disseminated blocks. We don't know. We know that the, if you look at the, the footprint of the remote sensing data, if you look at the neutron spectrometer, then it's um, a minimum of 20 kilometers, I think, per pixel. Where you say, oh yes, within that 20 kilometers, we've got a we've got a hydrogen, we've got neutron absorption, so we know we've got hydrogen. We assume that it's water. We know from Cabeus, which went in, which put a uh, put the impactor into a neutron suppression zone. That there was hydrogen, we know there's five and a half weight percent water in that plume, along with other things. So we know we're going to have to refine it. This is what we know, but we still don't know the variability um, at the at the at the meter scale of those deposits, and that's where ground truth is needed. Uh, being able to find it, being able to extract it, uh, and being able to do and being able to to refine it, transport it, store it. These are all things. That are question marks, but once we have the data, then engineering solutions can be found. So, so yep. I think that uh, we, the ground truth is, is imperative. And, and I put in knowing that their reserves, i.e. they have economic potential, is something that's going to be enabling. And that comes from getting to the surface and, and, uh, and, and doing the good old-fashioned prospecting. Uh, because we've done a lot from orbit, and we now know where to go on the surface, so we can do that. All right, well, let's go, man. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I said that in 2010. <laughs> All right, thanks, David. We'll thank, talk to you thank, later. thank you, John. Uh, listeners, there's still time if if you would like to give us a call and talk to Dr. Neal. And uh, again, our telephone number is one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Email Dr. Space, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Helen in Seattle says, does space tourism play any kind of a role in any of this? Your thoughts, please. I, I see space tourism as down the road. I think what we need to do is to, is to, get, is to be able to sustain humans off planet permanently, and then space tourism will come. Um, I see that as, as, as building upon the foundation that we're trying to put together now, um, and, and, and this is this is what I what I uh, would call part of the evolution of of a of a of the Artemis base camp, shall we say? And and this is something that we need to be thinking about now. Is well, how is that going to evolve, um, and how can we enable this this new economic aspect? Of, uh, of of having humans off planet. Uh, this is this is something I think that uh, that that we we need to have a long term vision in in what we're planning now, and and that's that's what I want to see uh, in terms of looking to the future, not just ten years in the future, but fifty years in the future. Uh, let's let's not you know let's not wait for it to happen. Let's start making it happen. 
uh, it's something that, 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 that I think we can do now. As I say, very, very excited about where we are um, as, a, as, a, as a country um, and in terms of, of, uh, of our space program. Uh, this, is, this is very different. There's going to be challenges, but, uh, but I think America has risen to a few challenges in the past, and uh, I think it will do so again. Uh, about, um, I, I don't know, four or five years ago, maybe longer, I think it was maybe the last time that AIAA did a California conference when they used to do those big mm-hmm. annual conferences called Space. Yeah. And uh, I uh, had arranged and met with two gentlemen from Lockheed, and mm-hmm. I had a space show supporter with me, so he participated in the interview, John Hunt, and I, I don't think he's listening today. But we interviewed two chaps from Lockheed because Lockheed wanted to promote their concept of a Mars base camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think it's gone any place. Maybe it's because it's just out there in the future and there's a lot of effort to uh, go to Mars if you're going to go that far. There's another school that says you've got to go to the Martian moon. Not Don't go directly to Mars. And then there's Lockheed's idea of a Mars base camp, which is kind of a mini Mars gateway, if I recall my memory correctly. Is something like that useful, do you think, uh, when the time is right, something like orbiting Mars with humans and making sorties down to the surface or maybe going to the Martian moons makes sense? Well, again, you, you, you look at the gateway for the moon. Uh, this is this has been engineered because because of a of an issue, as I said, with with Iran. Right. <clears throat> but this this is a way to sort of practice doing that uh, closer to home than uh, than you do it out at Mars. Uh, so so again, this becomes this this becomes enabling in order to do something like this. But again, evolving what we do on the moon whether it be making it sustainable through the cislunar economy, um, is, is, could be a blueprint for how we do things on Mars and, and making Mars sustainable. Because when we go to Mars, I don't want a one and done. That's the first step. We want, uh, we want to see, see more going. Um, we want to see more going, maybe, maybe having Buzz Aldrin's um, uh, cyclotron Forget what what he called it. Cycler, he, his he, he, he calls it a cycler. Cycler, yes, the cycler. Yeah, that uh, that goes to the moon and, and now back to Mars. Refuels at the moon and then boom, off we go again. So so this this is um, you know this, these are things where we actually have a program that's moon and Mars. Not moon to Mars. It's not moon or Mars. It's moon and Mars. And to me, this is the most productive way forward in terms of developing technologies, where you can develop the synergies. Uh, you can have destination agnostic technologies. Yes, they're going to have to be tweaked for specific environmental issues um, and, and concerns, but, but, but there, there are ways to do this. So, so I think that what we did when we developed the Lunar Exploration Roadmap was to look at all the, all the documents. <laughs> there was a lot of them that have been done about getting humans back to the moon to stay since Apollo. Um, and because we, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. And this is something that as we, as we evolve from, you know, we evolve Artemis to, to moon and Mars, we need to be doing the same sorts of things again. We need to look at what's been done because there's a lot of good stuff that's been done 
that we don't need to reinvent. That's just a bit wasteful, um, but it requires people reading um, a lot of documents and it requires people get, gaining that knowledge. So, so I, but, but I think what we're looking at here is an evolvable campaign. Um, we're starting with the moon and we're learning how to, how to live and work productively off planet. If I can, I can paraphrase, uh, Dr. Paul Studis. Um, and once we can do that at the moon, we can then expand that to Mars. And it's not using the moon as, and I hate this term, stepping stone, because then you just, you, stepping stone implies you're just gonna leave all the investment you've made, uh, at the moon and bog off to Mars. I know it just it, it it makes no sense to me. So we need to need to. That's why I think that uh, having the private sector and the economic impact of, at the moon and then Mars is going to be vital for sustainability of humans at both locations. You have a, another email, listener, uh, and this is from Tony Cook, um, who uh, always likes to point out he's retired from Griffith Observatory. Uh, Tony says since at least one company, SpaceX, is using the construction of a vast satellite constellation to fund space settlement, could the Artemis Accords be used as a tool to protect the concerns of how satellite constellations will affect ground-based astronomy on Earth? I'm thinking of large efforts like Large Synoptic Sky Survey Project and Starlink, only the first of several mega constellations now being launched. If not Artemis Accords, is there another international space agreement that can speak to this? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, uh, Tony. Um, I think that that's, I think it's a concern uh, that needs to be looked at, uh, but I, I'm, I'm not certain the Artemis Accords is something that would be able to to look at that. Um, but it's 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 certainly certainly a concern, and I know the astronomers uh, are looking at the far side of the moon in terms of uh, radio quiet. But then now we're looking at Gateway up there, and there's already a Comsat in L2, the Chinese Comsat, um, uh, for the for the uh, uh, Chang'e four mission and the U22 rover. Uh, but uh, but there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of concern I know about that from the uh, at least some in the astronomy community um, and I'm sure there'll be you know similar sorts of things and this is something that uh, I think needs to be brought up uh, to to a policy level in terms of okay this is this is good in one re one area but it's it's bad in another and how are we going to reach a happy happy medium um, but but I don't think the Artemis Accords would be the right place to do that um. Linda is in Los Angeles, and uh, Linda has a note and says, on several recent space show programs, and probably more over the years, it seems like space solar power is getting a new breath of life. Do you have any thoughts on it? We haven't talked about it. Dr. Criswall also, before he passed away, used to advocate space solar power emanating from the backside of the moon. I don't know if that plan is dead or not. Uh, but unfortunately, Dr. Criswell's not with us anymore. Uh, right. Your thoughts on all of this, please. Well, I think uh, I think when you look at power, um, I mean, Joe Joe uh, uh, Sersel is is certainly Sussel, leading the yeah. way in that uh -huh. with some of the power beaming ideas on the surface at the moment. Um, 
But if you, we, we held a workshop in 2019 uh, about lunar in situ resource utilization. And it became clear that, that, uh, that mining on the moon is going to be power hungry and kilo power is not going to be enough. And so a, a diversity of power options becomes important and, and solar power may not be enough. So with that being said, then you're looking at the, the, the nuclear uh, side of things and um, uh, looking at, um, looking at uh, linking up kilopower units. But, but kilopower is heavy and massive. Um, and if you're going to get megapower, then you're going to need even more. So the one thing that the moon has, and Harrison Schmidt has, has talked a lot about this, is the helium-3 and, and potential for nuclear fusion. And uh, investments in nuclear fusion technology need to be made, I think, now because the moon represents a, 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 a significant area of interest for fuel. Um, and, and just to sort of let everybody know that, that helium-3 is not very prevalent on Earth, but it's implanted in the regolith from the solar wind uh, on the moon. And so there's much more of it up there. And I think... Uh, Harrison, in his book, Return to the Moon, did a calculation that one shuttle cargo bay full of helium-3 would fuel the U.S. for one year. Um, that sort of puts it into perspective, but we don't have the technology to use it. So uh, investments need to be made in order to make this a reality. And there are a number of countries that are looking at the moon for, for, for fuel and uh, for nuclear fusion. And when you fuse two helium-3s together, you get a helium-4, and, uh, and two hydrogen atoms. So there's no toxic byproducts. So it's the nirvana of the nuclear industry when you look at that in terms of fuel. So, but, but solar power is going to play a critical role. Um, but you still need to survive, uh, the, the times of no sun. So, uh, there's, there's going to be a mixture of different, uh, power, um, uh, power supplies, I think. Uh, but we need to, that this is something that I would also put in the critical category. And if you can develop these, these killer power units, um, for the, uh, for off world, you can also do similar sort of thing down on this planet. So you could beam power back to Earth and learning how to do that and use it on the moon helps getting it back to Earth. Well, again, the, 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 the Dave, Dave's uh, um, ideas of power beam from the moon back to Earth, um, I, I think that we need to look at power beaming on the moon um, in order before we start looking at uh, setting up power beaming back to Earth. Um, power beaming back to where is, is one, of the, one of the issues. Um, and uh, You have a no-fly zone around where you're... Getting, getting your power, um, so there's there's lots of things that need to be looked at in that that uh, that weren't fully developed at the time of Dave's passing. Um, I have, um, I was going to say a beginner's question, but it really isn't a beginner's question. But it's a question of concern for someone outside the space community. Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, it's Roger, and uh, Roger's in Reno, Nevada. And he says, he says, I, I like to listen to space programs. Uh, I've heard a few space show programs, but I'm not a space person, nor am I a scientist. But I have talked about this with many, many of my friends who are also outside your community. 
And we have a concern that never seems to get expressed or talked about in the media with all of the activity that is planned on the moon, including possibly excavation, mining, building, construction of some type, using resources, lava tubes, whatever is being talked about. Is there any chance that any of this can disturb the moon's relationship with the Earth and cause problems? Uh, I would I would say no, um, because if we if we went up there and destroyed the moon completely, then well we wouldn't have any more tides. Um, if we uh, the moon itself is slowly getting further away uh, from Earth, uh, one day we will lose it. Um, but uh, but right now we we haven't. It's uh, we we have the retroreflectors up there from Apollo that we've been ranging to since Apollo 11, and uh, it shows that it's slowly getting further away. So, but but the the act the human activity on the moon, as envisaged right now, um, in in the next 50 years, 100 years, 150 years. Is, is not going to change the, the the mass of the moon, and it's not going to change the the orbit of the moon. The moon is doing its own thing, and we just we just uh, we're we just ephemeral to that. So so I, I, this has been raised um, uh, in the in the science community a number of times about protecting the lunar environment uh, from from human activity. And I think that uh, we, we, we need to learn from the way we've not protected the environment down here in many cases um, when we go up there because we, we want to use the moon forever. So we don't want to make it a place we can't go anymore. So, so I think protecting the environment is essential so that we will protect future human activity on the moon. But, uh, but in terms of the, the, the massive investment, um, Building and the massive uh, excavations. Those excavations will only be done as the material is needed. And what we're doing right now is, yes, we're talking human permanence on the on on the moon, and there are companies that are talking about a million working in in space. Um, but uh, but I I think we're we're looking at a long term future there. And none of that is, is going to alter the moon's orbit or is it it's going to alter the, uh, uh, the moon's trajectory. We're going to lose it eventually, but it's uh, probably a few billion years in the future. Um, you have active classes still at Notre Dame, correct? Correct. And um, what, are the, what are the trends or the interests of your students today? Are they... Inspired by SpaceX, do they want to go to Mars? Do they want to go into private sector? Do they want to, you know, work on a government NASA project? Tell us a little bit about your students and their interest in, in what the younger generations are thinking about. Well, I, t- I teach, a, teach a course that I've been uh, putting together for a few years now. I'm teaching it this year. I've got 25 students in there called Living and Working on the Moon. Um, and I have a couple students that are that are auditing the class because they're already overloaded with their with their schedule and uh, so but they they they're interested um, and the the interest I find in the questions are, are, are inspiring because they're excited about space they're excited about the moon 
Um, they see Mars as, as being in the future, but the moon as being more immediate. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's probably my imprint on them. Um, but, but again, as, as I've told them, there's, there's a number of things that come through. Is that cooperation make, gives, makes a sustainable space exploration program. Um, you know, that's cooperation between governments, not competition. Um, but it, it's also the fact that the private sector is essential to, to, to bring with you and to enable through commercial on-ramps um, as you plan to go out into the solar system. Otherwise, sustainability is not built in to, uh, to, the, to, to your taxpayer-funded mission. So, again, re- coming back to what I said right at the beginning, the return on investment to the, to the, to the American taxpayer is, is paramount. We have to show that, that there, there is a return on that investment. I want NASA's budget to be viewed by everybody in this country as an investment in our future. And, and that's why I was really pleased to see NASA in 2019 do that economic study. Um, I urge everybody to read that report. You can get it off the NASA web- website. It, 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 it's, uh, or at least read the executive summary. It's fantastic. Um, um, but that's, that's the investment in our country and, and in our future. So I, I think that those sorts of things need to continue. And the students get that. And, and, again, I don't think it's that far away. And I think I could see it before I retire. When I ask a student at Notre Dame, what are you going to do after Notre Dame? And they turn to me and say, well, I'm going to go work on the moon. I don't think that's science fiction anymore. I think we're getting to the point now where we, we, are, we are laying a foundation. This country is laying a foundation where that becomes science fact. And if that can become science fact, then who knows what opportunities are going to, uh, to come out of that. Uh, bringing the moon into our economic sphere of influence is critical. I, I really think that's important because it also brings the moon into our inspirational sphere of influence as well. So you actually do have students telling you that they're going to go work on the moon? No, I want them to say that. I okay, hope you want that to... I have students that will say that, that they've already got a job to go work on the moon when they graduate. That's my plan. That's what I want to see before I leave this planet. Well, um, I, I certainly... Um hope you uh, accomplish that. That, that that would be great far far beyond just you and, and Notre Dame and the students interest as, as well um, we're coming up on uh, toward the end of our 90 minute program have we omitted something forgotten something is, is there more that we should have talked to you about I mean this is a great oh. opportunity to, to talk with you and I, I want to capitalize on it as much as possible well, again, we've covered a lot of ground here today. I mean, the the I think the important thing is is to you know for your listeners to pay attention to what what the, the government is doing with the space program, what NASA is doing with our space program, and see the potential that, that we have. The, the future is is really bright in terms of, of space, in terms of our economy, our cislunar economy, um, and and we need to make sure that the path is maintained uh, because this is going to open up uh, limitless opportunities. I, I can't tell you how it's going to develop, but to have that uh, have that potential, um, we open up you know uh, space around Earth, and look what happened there. Um, there's some things that need to be done differently in terms of space debris, but uh, we, we've made. You know, there's there's no end of opportunities that have come out that were unforeseen when this, this started. 
So now it's time to uh, um, time to uh, uh, make make that step out to the next to the next point uh, to the cislunar area, and uh, and then on then, then out to Mars, um, bring Mars into our economic sphere of influence. So so a long term plan to do that becomes very important, and and, and this is this is we're, we're getting to that point. Um, the Lunar Exploration Roadmap League was asked to develop that, and that represents a long-term plan. You got an 11th hour, probably last email question of the day. Tim is in Chicago, and he says, uh, Professor, uh, if you can remember, how did the students 10 years ago when you were on the space show differ from today, or I guess we could flip it, how do today's students differ from the students you had 10 years ago? Well, I think they're more affected by social media, and, and I and and especially um, I'm affected by it as well. Watching watching those SpaceX boosters return and land. This is the way we should be doing um, space now: is reusability. So this makes us a less a bit of a dinosaur, doesn't it? So, uh-huh. um, but uh, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, sure. Oh, you, can say, you can say worse oh, than oh, that. Oh, <laughs> too late. Too late. I already said it. Um, the so, so yeah, the students, the Notre Dame students, are, are always very engaged, and, and, and that's that's what I what I like about teaching at Notre Dame. I'm in year 31 of doing that, unfortunately. <laughs> so, uh, um, but but the students now um, they see a range of possibilities out there that, that weren't around 10 years ago. These these companies, these private companies, uh, commercial lunar payload services, launch companies. Have blossomed, and as I said, they're, they're adding people to their payrolls, even during a pandemic and a massive economic contraction. So this is a growth industry, even in times of recession. So, so this is bright for our future, and, and we need to continue to develop that through through good space policy, um, uh, good public-private partnerships, um, and 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 educating our students to take advantage of that. And that's something that. Uh, that, that I hope that we can do is to is to evolve our curricula to be able to, to include some of this in, uh, and at least give our students uh, uh, an exposure to, to the possibilities that space provides. Uh, another email quickly came in, if you can stay for another minute. Wayne, also in Chicago, said, I'm surprised that China did not come up in your discussion. Is there a reason to be concerned about China's moon plans getting there before the Western countries get there, the U.S., or should we not have that as a concern? Again, I come back to cooperation rather than competition. Um, I have cooperated with with scientists in China. Um, I I hope uh, through my Chinese colleagues to be able to analyze some of the Chang'e 5 samples that were recently returned in December. Um, China has made phenomenal pro- progress. I, I taught a summer school in 2016 out in Wuhan um, uh, to, to graduate students from Japan, Korea, and China. The enthusiasm in Asia for, for the moon is incredible. Um, and, and what China has done, landed robotically, soft-landed say, you know, successfully on the far side and operated a rover. They've done the first robotic sample return since 1976. They've done that successfully as well. 
and they brought back uh, um, almost uh, 1.8 kilograms of, of material from an area that, that, that is of a, a different area from Apollo and, and the Soviet lunar landers went to and an area that is much younger in terms of uh, the, the activity that's witnessed there than, than Apollo. So China, I, I think, in terms of scientist to scientist, we're, we're cooperating incredibly well. Um, it's, it's when you get in, you start mixing politics in there, things get murky, and I'm definitely not a politician. But, uh, but in terms of, of the science, the cooperation is going on now, and, and, and it's fantastic. Uh, we have a thing in this country called the Wolf Amendment that I need to be very careful uh, with because that can put me in jail. Um, I, I cannot use any NASA funding to support bilateral studies and cooperation with, uh, with, with, with China. Um, that's against the law. And, and so I have to be very careful of that. But, but I, I think that uh, at the scientist level, things are going swimmingly well in terms of cooperation. Uh, any other closing comments you'd like to leave us with today? Um, I think, again, I, I, I want to let, let's bring up China just, just at, the, at the closing here. China is, is, has plans uh, for space, uh, their space station. Uh, they've got um, they've put, to put a, an orbiter in around Mars, and they've done a robotic sample return from the moon. Uh, there's going to be new things that come from China, and I, I look at that in terms of if we can if we can cooperate and align what what our goals are, everybody wins. So that's that's at the political level, and um, uh-huh. that's above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I'm, I'm I'm again hopeful that that scientists can can have a voice in this. And as I say, at the scientist level, we work well together. Um, and and uh, that, that should be a lesson to everybody because it's, uh, it's, it's not about political gain. It's about the science, and, uh, and, and that's, that's what we focus on. So, so uh, again, I'm very optimistic for the future in, ter- in general terms for our space program. I think we're on a great path, um, very optimistic for the future, and if we stay the course, it's going to be good times ahead. And I bet you're a master at at least navigating 31 years of academic politics. So uh, you're probably not as naive as you want us to believe about politics. No, no, I just ignore them. (laughs) Well, that's part of the wisdom of mastering academic politics is is that you learn how to ignore them. I I made a comment once that didn't go down very well at Notre Dame when I said that the arguments are so intense because the stakes are so low in academia. (laughs) I I can imagine that wouldn't. Clive, I I promise you we will talk to you much sooner than another 10 years. (laughs) I I thoroughly enjoyed this and great questions. Thanks, everybody, for for the questions. Fantastic questions, and uh, I I hope that you like the answers. And... um, as I say, very optimistic for the future here. Well, we'll we'll check in with you again in the in the not too distant future, and you stay well and healthy, and uh, tell your students they have a, a great future ahead with space. Uh, yeah, but, but you know, like everything, it doesn't just come willy nilly. We we have to work for it. So, 
Exactly. Uh, and I'm sure they'll do that. Listeners, uh, I'm going to thank our sponsors in just a second, but I do want to thank Dr. Neal and those of you who called and those of you who have emailed us uh, for today. And uh, you got a weekend coming up. Please stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, as we like to say, always, always keep looking up. And uh, Dr. Neal, we'll talk to you again soon. And thank you again for yeah. being on the space show. Thank you. Thank you very much, David, and good luck with your second shot. Um, <laughs> certainly worth getting. Uh, but uh, thanks, everyone. And again, I'd love to come back in, in, in certainly quicker than 10 years. Um, absolutely. Well, you and I may not be around in 10 years, so it has to be quicker than 10 years. So, uh, well, Come on now. We'll, we'll, do, we'll, we'll do that. Thank you again, Clive, and good talking to you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. It's been great. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Bye-bye. And uh, listeners, uh, we do have sponsors. And, again, because I didn't take the break, I'll I'll just shout out to Northrop Grumman, Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Moonwards, Celestis National Space Society. If you like these programs, if you like guests like Dr. Clive Neal, it's important for me to thank these sponsors because they are absolutely instrumental in making this kind of programming possible as, of course, are your gifts to the space show. Sponsors get the banner ad running across the homepage, which they can change whenever they want. And normally on a full-length program, I would have read their 60-second spots. Uh, I need to get back into doing that, And um, but Clive is so captivating, and the callers were great. I didn't want to break that momentum. So, um, again, we deeply appreciate Northrop Grumman Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Moonwards, Celestis, and the National Space Society. Everybody have a great weekend. As I said, do keep it safe. Do stay healthy. And uh, we're back Sunday on space law and policy, especially especially towards the moon. Keep looking up, everybody. Goodbye from the space show.